Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Score Studios, as always, with co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? What up? Uh, still not a lot. Still, we're not really in the dog days of summer anymore because it's now autumn. And we're, NBA, we're getting close yeah, to... Yeah, NBA uh, training camp's open yeah. this weekend. So, uh, a lot more going on than, say, a couple weeks ago, but still not really in, in a heavy news cycle. It's more like the promise of things happening right. than things actually happening. What's the biggest news right now? The Bucks getting fined 50000 for self-tampering and admitting that they're going to offer Giannis Antetokounmpo a Supermax extension next summer? I thought we were done with this. Like, I, like these, done talking about it? or No, no, no. I thought we were done with these petty tampering infractions that don't address anything about the issue that they're actually trying to fix. I yeah. thought we were past it. Yeah. Well, but apparently not. not. I don't know if this is like the NBA just being like, guys, we're real serious about enforcing these extra strict tampering rules we instituted. But if that's the case, like this was not the example to be made. There's nothing less serious than a $50,000 fine for, for an NBA owner. Self-tampering. <laughs> for self-tampering. Yeah. This is, this is not a serious... Yeah. Uh, piece of discipline but anyway um that's yeah that's pretty much all that's going on right now i mean unless unless you want to talk about Lamelo ball being a potential number one pick but if i know joe wolf on he does not want to talk about Lamelo ball being a potential number one pick i mean i'm not really a draft nick and i can't say that i've ever really watched Lamelo ball play in anything resembling like high-end competition so i've got nothing to add on that front yeah well, uh, I'll tell you, if you watch him play in the NBL, you also will not be seeing him play in high-level competition. It's, sorry to any of our Australian listeners. That's not fair. I'm sure it's solid competition out there. But anyway, we're not going to talk about any of that stuff today. Today is going to be another one of our season preview type pods. Last week, I believe we did teams with the widest ranges of outcomes this coming season. Today, we're going to talk about players and specifically players we think are due for either a breakout or a regression from last season so let's not waste any more time off the top let's get right to it joe Wolfon, give me your first breakout candidate all right so i'm just going to preempt this very preempt. quickly and say as a general rule i i tend to be pretty infatuated with young bigs who can defend and pass and who have some ball skills those guys even even if they're like super raw, that's just a player type that I really like a lot. So there are two of those guys um, on my list of breakout candidates, and the first one is Bam Adebayo. Nice. I'll say, like, I've been overly optimistic about guys like that in the past who haven't really popped in the way that I expected them to. Um, and, you know, a guy like Harry Giles, I guess, is a good example of this, or will be a good test case, and we'll see what he can become. But there are always sort of some limitations, I suppose, that might prevent those guys from reaching their ceilings. And I I just don't really see those limitations with Bam. Like, um, he's strong. He's athletic. He's nimble. He's fluid. He's smart. He has all the physical tools. Um, but I think he also just has a great awareness and sense of the game. And he's really going to have an opportunity this season, right? Like, I think... Hassan Whiteside was a malcontent, but the heat moving on from him, I think, still signals a commitment on their part to giving Adebayo this opportunity to take the starting center job and run with it. And I just think Bam's really good. Like, on both sides of the ball, like, I think he has the potential to be a high-end defender. He's got a great motor. And, again, he has some passing chops. Like, he can rebound. Um, he has some scoring touch inside. I would like to see him add a bit more stretch to his game. But I think just because of his strength uh, and that interior scoring touch, it's not really a necessity for him the way that it might be for another center that doesn't have range. And I think as long as he's playing with shooting around him, uh, that won't be an issue. And and so to me, like, the possibility of, say, uh, Bam Olenek front court is really fascinating. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I had Bam as one of my honorable mentions. If We've got pieces up right now. Well, the West edition went up today, and it was our best case, worst case for every NBA team. The East will be going up tomorrow. I'm pretty sure I wrote in, in the best case for the Heat that I could see Bam being in the MIP discussion this year. Like, I really do think he could be that good. I think could be due for that kind of breakout for a lot of the reasons you explained. And, man, I think a bam front court, both stay healthy. Like, if the Heat are competitive... I. 
I just think they could be a really fun, perfectly complimentary front court. Like, I don't want to go too far off topic and go team heavier, but I think the Heat could be sneaky good this year in a wide open East. You know, we'll see if they deal for another star. As we've talked about before, Chris Paul still linked to them. Regardless, even just as they are, I think they're like a solid playoff team. I think Bam will have a lot to do with that. And and yeah, I think he could be one of the guys in the discussion for most improved player. After the All-Star break last year, and, you know, important caveat is that per 36 numbers, especially for big men, are kind of pointless because right. what big men play 36 minutes a game anymore? But Who, who really plays 36 minutes a game yeah. anymore? Like? So I think they should maybe actually knock that down to like per 32. Yeah. But per 36 after the All-Star break, 15.4 points, 11.9 rebounds, 3.9 assists, 1.5 steals, 1.2 blocks. He, he can just do a little bit of everything. Uh, he, he's an efficient scorer. And again, I would it would be nice if he just had like a bit more of a functional jump shot. But I don't necessarily think he needs it in order to have the breakout that I can see him having. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a breakout candidate now, and then we can go to regression, a couple of regression candidates. After this, I'm going to stick with the big man theme. I'm going to stay in the Southeast Division. I'm going to go with Jonathan Isaac. Yeah, well, that's the, the, the other guy I was referencing right. on my list of, of big men with some ball skills and defensive chops. So, so yeah. I thought he already made great strides from his rookie year to his sophomore year. I thought he was one of the bright spots in their five-game series against the Raptors, even if maybe the numbers didn't always show it. Uh, he's a defensive menace. His defensive versatility fits the modern game perfectly. He's not as lost on offense, I think, as a lot of people assumed he would be, or even a lot of people still think he is. Like Even, even from like a shooting range perspective, okay, he's only shooting like 32.7% from three, but he's made more than one per game for his career in that like 32, 33% range. That's not like atrocious. That's not like you're starting from nowhere and, and have to build this guy up. Like yeah. there is something there, some semblance of an offensive game. And if he's as good as I think he can be defensively, and honestly, as good as he's already shown he might be defensively, he doesn't have to light the world on fire with his scoring. He just needs to be average to slightly above average offensively with the defense he can bring at, at a multitude of positions. To me, this guy has underlying star potential written all over him. Yeah, and we'll go back to some arbitrary endpoints here, which might become a running theme. But after the All-Star break last year, 38% from three on almost five attempts per game. So, you know, that, that spot-up jumper really came along, and that was really helpful in terms of, you know, what the Magic were able to do down the stretch. It's weird because, like, for the most part, they were trying to use him to space the floor around Augustine Vucevic pick-and-rolls, and they very rarely used him as a role man. And I wonder if that's something they might experiment with a little bit more because, at this point, Vucevic is a better shooter than he is. Like, why not flip that structure and have Vooch spacing the floor around, like, an Augustine Isaac pick and roll? That might make a little bit more sense. Or at least, like, you just have a balance where you're doing uh, a little bit of each. But to me, I guess the biggest roadblock to him having a breakout this year is opportunity. You know, we talk about how the road has been cleared for Bam to take that starting center job. In Orlando, it's just... Like, they're rammed with fives and it's fours. It's the opposite of cleared. There's speed bumps at all yeah. turns. We got Vooch, Bamba, Kem Birch, Aaron Gordon, Al Farouk Aminu. So, first of all, there's not going to be a lot of opportunity for him to play the five. Because you've got three fives who are already going to be jockeying for playing time. And if you're playing him at the four, you're basically bumping Gordon or Aminu down to a not optimal position. So... It's not like the roster isn't really set up for him to have a breakout. But at the same time, I think the Magic really need some off-the-dribble playmaking out of their front court. And I guess out of all those guys, like maybe you'd say Gordon is the most likely to give that to them. But I think Isaac has shown that he has some ball skills. Um, and maybe you give him a little bit more room to build out that part of his game. And he's the guy in that group who can really pop and elevate himself. And maybe Gordon, as I've speculated in the past, is a trade candidate, and that helps clear the way for him. Like There, there are a few ways that he can carve out that opportunity for himself, even if it doesn't look like it's there right now. So I know Vooch is basically an all-star in the East, and Aaron Gordon, numbers-wise, is kind of on a different planet from Isaac so far would you be that shocked if by the end of this season 
people believe Jonathan Isaac is their best player? I would be very surprised. Like, and we can talk about Vooch when we get to our regression yeah, candidates. Yeah, I think so. But I still think, like, just given the heights that he would still have to fall from, like, Vooch was so good last year. I would be pretty surprised if Isaac is on that level, even by the end of this year. Like, there's so much polish in Vucevic's offensive game, and he actually had a really good defensive season last year, too. Like, the leap that Isaac would have to take to get to that level this year, I think, is, is pretty substantial. So I would be surprised by that. Second best player, I can totally see. Um, and, you know, it starts at the defensive end. Like, you want to talk about somebody with physical tools... Uh, he's listed at 6'11", I think, but there are a bunch of people who think he's over 7 feet. Um, he's got a 7'2 wingspan, over 9-foot standing reach, can switch across all three front court positions, moves his feet really well, athletic. Like, he absolutely has all defensive upside. And so at that end of the floor, I have really no concerns about where he's going to be this year or beyond offensively is is where the growth has to come and the magic were not very good offensively last season and Isaac was terrible in the playoffs like and and they need him at that end of the floor I think to be part of the solution going forward so that's what I'm going to be keeping my eye on but he was on my list of breakout candidates as well because I, I just really believe in his untapped ability all right so since we just basically both admitted that Vooch is on our both of our regression list. Should we just hit him now? Might as well. Yeah. Get out of the way. There. I'll say, like, the reason he's on this list is because it's insane how good he was last year. Yeah. And and how out of left field that breakout came. Um, like, his shooting, his post-scoring, his rebounding, his passing. All his of those defense. Were, all of those were career best. His his defensive metrics were not only the best of his career, but some of the best in the league yeah. last year. He it was, made no sense. <laughs> I mean, Steve Clifford can work some wonders, yeah. and I think just putting him in that sort of simplified drop-back scheme. Do you remember what Steve Clifford did with Al Jefferson? When Al Jefferson was like one of the biggest sieves in the league? I do. Yeah. Al Jefferson was a third-team All-NBA All, yeah. in, in, what, 2013-14? Yeah. Still the best teammate Kemba Walker's ever had. <laughs> but, yeah, man, Vucevic. Eighth in the league in RPM, tenth in box plus minus, tenth in win shares. Like any metric you want to pull, he was in like the top fifteen or twenty in the league, and he got exposed in the playoffs. I I believe he still refers to Marcus All as daddy. <laughs> um, and no, look, there are not a lot of teams that are going to be able to do that to him on a night to night basis during the regular season. Um, you know, the playoffs, I guess, would still be a concern for me. Uh, but I also think that has more to do with the fact that the Magic just don't really have shot creation from their guards or their wings. And they were just sort of asking Vucevic to do a little bit too much. And, you know, as their roster is currently constructed, that's still going to be an issue. Now, if they make a trade that balances their roster, then we might be telling a different story. But for now, like, I still expect him to be really good. I just expect a lot of pullback from last season's production and kind of expect him to land somewhere between last season and his career baseline up to that point. Exactly. Like at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, how likely is it that a guy who had this very strange, like breakout season across the board on both ends of the court at age 28 in his eighth season how likely is it that that's just what he is now, you know, compared to the first seven years of his career? We're not talking about a guy that broke out in his third or fourth year at like 24, 25. This was such a low break, late breakout that it's hard for me to accept that this is just who he is now for the rest of his career. And it's like you said, it's not like I'm expecting him to fall off a cliff. I'm not expecting him to be a net negative out there. He's still a very good player, especially on the offensive end. He can regress and still be a potential all-star this season. I just don't think he's going to be as elite which is what he was last year. I just don't... I can't see him being that. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. I guess I'll throw out another regression candidate. You want to go back to breakouts? No, yeah. Go for it. Blake Griffin. <laughs> He's on my list as well. Not in the same way I see Vucevic regressing, where Vuce 
you know, it's a little bit of I just don't believe he's as good as he was last year. I think Blake Griffin is every bit as good as he was last year. We saw it back in the day when Chris Paul was hurt that year, and he went point forward and, you know, was in the MVP discussion that year. Last year might have been the best year of his career. Blake Griffin is a phenomenal and maybe still underrated superstar in the NBA. The issue with Blake Griffin is he's going to be 31 in March. He's got a he's a big man with a history of injury issues, specifically knee issues. He has to carry a very flawed offensively challenged roster every night. And we saw that last year with the Pistons. And he did an admirable job, but that takes its toll on a 31-year-old big man with knee problems. Last year, he actually played 75 games, but we saw how he broke down at the end and couldn't give them anything, missed some games in the playoffs with that bum knee. Before last season, when he only missed seven games, in the four seasons prior to that, he missed 24 games, 21 games, 47 games, 15 games. So chances are, like last year was a bit of an aberration, and Blake Griffin's going to miss at least a quarter of the year. I just, it's very hard for me to see that guy with that body and and his injury history playing as much as he did last year because I just think the load he has to carry on that team is too great. I think having Reggie Jackson healthy for a full season as kind of meh as Reggie Jackson is as far as starting point guards go, I actually think that could go a long way towards helping him just because it might help to not have to carry that heavy a playmaking burden every night. And granted, he was really good in that role. And without him, I don't know what the Pistons offense would have been or what it would have done. And, you know, like, we used to talk about him as though he was a big, but he's not really a big anymore, right? Like, he's basically a playmaking wing or a point forward, you know, in in the mold of, like, a LeBron or a Ben Simmons. So, I, I think, like, if Reggie's healthy, then just maybe moving him off the ball for a few extra possessions a game might help him stay healthy, but... Um, the other area, I guess, where I might be a bit wary of him repeating last year's performance is the pull-up three-point shooting. How many guys do you think took more pull-up threes than Blake Griffin last season? Harden? I'll tell you, it's eight Steph? guys. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, and he just, like, he had never done anything like that before. And he hit 36% of them, which is, like, on a level with Lillard, Kemba, Harden... CJ McCollum, like elite pull-up three-point shooters. So, you know, for a guy to have done that for the first time, I think it would be difficult for anybody to maintain that level of volume and efficiency as a pull-up three-point shooter, but especially a guy who just hadn't done it before. So that's another area where I think we might see some pullback. Um, and, and yeah, the health thing would concern me too. But I do think, you know, if Reggie Jackson can stay healthy if they have some complimentary playmaking because they just didn't have any of it last year and he really had to to take on a pretty heavy load, then hopefully uh, that helps keep him fresh and we don't see him break down at the end of the season the way that he did last year. Checking it right now as I ask it, how many years does Blake Griffin have left on that contract? I think two, maybe three. Because like, there's a guy that no one's really talking about him as a potential... Yeah, so he's got two. He's got this year and next year. But, like, I don't know. That's that's a guy with, like, the Pistons are their usual, like, mediocre selves. Maybe a little worse. And he's still an all-star big. And, like... He's got three years. He's picking up that player uh, option in Yeah, the third year's a player option. Uh, never mind. <laughs> a $39 million yeah, dollar player mind. option, which he is going to be... He is stuck with the Pistons. The Pistons are stuck with him. And they will win 39 to 41 <laughs> games for all eternity. All right, moving on. <laughs> Hit me with a break, okay? I will say, though, Andre Drummond is a guy who has a player option for next year that 28 and a half million yeah that's i guess an interesting player option i mean he might be a trade candidate there yeah there are like he he was in trade talks the last two years yeah but there's like very few teams i guess that are going to be in the market for a big man especially one that makes that much money and and can't shoot so i guess that's tough to see but Uh, if they if they could find a way to move him for something of value then i might feel better about their overall upward mobility for like the 12th year in a row the pistons might be the least interesting team in the league yeah i mean we're talking about the teams with the widest range of outcomes every year it seems like they have the smallest range of outcomes yeah like they'll win between 38 and 42 games in front of approximately 38 to 42 people every (laughs) night (laughs) all right little caesar's arena oh boy (laughs) hit me with a breakout candidate miles bridges nice okay 
I I liked what I saw from him last year, even though he didn't like what he saw from himself last <laughs> year. He he said I played like ass all year. Uh, he said that upon being left off of the all rookie teams, and he did play like ass for stretches of the year. But I I saw a lot of things that gave me optimism about what he can be. And there were I think, some non ass moments for sure, for sure. And I, like the outline of a high end three and D player is already there, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I'm banking on him being more than that, and I think this year especially the Hornets are going to, or at least should give him the opportunity to spread his wings, to experiment, expand his game, give him the freedom to fail. You know, like he had a 15% usage rate last year, and I would really hope to see that come up to like 20%. Um, He should be given license, I think, to run some pick and rolls, and especially to lead the break. Because he is fast, he is athletic, and I think he could be really good as like a rip and run guy. Um, a guy who's just pulling down the defensive rebound and then pushing the pace. And and that's another thing. Like, the Hornets played super slow last season. They were bottom 10 in pace. I think they'll probably speed things up this year because most bad rebuilding teams tend to do that. Um, and I think he's a guy who, who could really push it in transition and, and be effective in the open floor. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful about what he can do and what he can be. And, you know, defensively, like, on balance, he was poor defensively last season, as almost all rookies are. But mainly, that was in terms of schematics and team defense. And I think in terms of his individual defense, he showed flashes of some pretty terrific stuff. And I think, in theory, he should have the capacity to guard, like, two through four. No problem. Uh, because his strength and physicality are already there. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on Miles Bridges? I liked his game for parts of last season. I, I know we were joking about him being hard on himself, but I, I really don't think his rookie year was anywhere near as bad as he seemed to believe it was. And like you talk about a, a guy who should see some increased usage. Where else is that usage going to go? Kemba Walker's gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Terry Rozier is probably not probably. He's almost surely going to have the highest usage on this team, which is a joke, but they also gave him 54 ish million dollars over three years. Yeah. So he, he's going to have the highest usage, but like you but Terry Rozier's highest career usage percentage in a single season is like barely above 20%. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I, he's going to get it. I just, I don't think he's ready for it, but I think he's going to get it. Yeah, for sure. But then you go down the list after that, it's like, Batum, okay, he's probably stuck in Charlotte a couple of years. But like, other than his trade value, there's no reason really for them to be investing in this guy's future. Bismack Biombo, his usage rate might be negative. <laughs> uh, Marvin Williams, like not part of the future. Cody Zeller, meh. MKG, still can't shoot. Malik Monk, uh, PJ Washington. And then you get Miles Bridges, like, yeah, where else are these touches? Like Somebody's going to have to soak right. up these possessions. And we'll see. I mean, it's going to be kind of like a sink or swim thing. Let's see if let's see if he's got it in him as a second-year player. Mm-hmm. If not, he will be exposed because he's going to get the ball. He's going to have chances to score or at least do something with it, playmate, do something. Yeah. I, I do think, like, he needs to be better than, I think he shot 32% from three last season. He's got to be better than that, but... I think that he will be because to me his, his jumper looks good, his form, his mechanics, um, and he did shoot. Uh, I think like thirty five percent after the All Star break last year, fifty seven percent true shooting, and he shot fifty five percent from two point range last season, which is really quite good for a rookie player. So, to me, I guess the big question about that and the potential downside of all the stuff we're talking about, all the possessions that he's going to get to soak up, is like who is creating shots for him. Because as much as I would like to see him trying more stuff with the ball in his hands, it's still going to be a while before he can consistently create for himself. And, like, I don't see him necessarily hitting a high percentage of shots off the dribble this coming season. And things are going to get harder for him in that sense without Kemba there, I think, to create shots for him. Yeah, no, like, I, like who, I, I, I don't know who else. Where's the playmaking coming from on this team? It's not. It's coming from nowhere. This yeah. team is going to be so bad and so depressing. Well, one potential bright spot, breakout candidate, Miles Bridges. All right, I'll hit you with a breakout candidate. I This is 
very far from being off the board. Some people might not even consider him a breakout candidate anymore, but I'm going with Karis LeVert. People kind of learned who he was last year, but if you look at his like final numbers for the year, I think he averaged like 13 and change per game. He missed a chunk of the year, if you remember, with that gruesome leg injury. But before he went down with that injury, he was averaging about 18-4-4 and on 48% shooting and was very much looking like a MIP candidate early in the year. He suffers that gruesome injury. He comes back. And it's pretty bad when he does get back. And he's like, like 11 points, four assists on less than 39% shooting. Just looked like a shell of himself. And then has a great first-round playoff series against Philly where he averages like 21 a game, shoots 46% from three in the series. No KD probably for the season. D'Lo's gone. He's going to obviously be sharing a backcourt with Kyrie Irving and Spencer Dinwiddie as well. But I do think that we will see a lot more of the Karis LeVert that started last season and the one that ended it in the playoffs, the kind of guy that can actually be like close to, if not a 20-point-a-game score a night in the NBA. He can do it with like solidish efficiency. He's got this kind of like herky-jerky game, but he makes it work. You know, it's, it's not herky-jerky and going nowhere. Like it's herky-jerky. He makes it work. He reads the game well. Usually those herky-jerky guys kind of have low basketball IQ. I don't think that's the case with him. I think he reads the game pretty well. I think he's like a decent playmaker. And, and yeah, I think, you know, at least to start the year, he's kind of like third in that pecking order, I'd say, after Kyrie and Spencer Dinwiddie. But I think he can push Dinwiddie for some of those minutes with Kyrie. I think the three of them might play together at times. Uh, and yeah, I think I think he's in line, especially numbers-wise, for a pretty sizable jump from what he was last year. Yeah, I don't have too much to add because I've talked about Levert so much over the past couple months. I think this is going to be a really interesting and telling season for him. But uh, I'll just you know piggyback on something you said about his herky-jerky game and about how those kind of players sometimes don't necessarily read the game well. With him, it's like... Some guys move slowly because they're indecisive and some guys move slowly because they're patient and they're waiting for the right opportunity to open up. And Levert, I think, falls into the latter category. And I actually wrote about this during that Philly series because his patience orchestrating the pick and roll was just outstanding. Like waiting for that opening where he could throw the pocket pass, waiting for the defender to back off just enough that he could get that pull-up jumper off waiting for the defender to commit one way or another so he could zoom in the opposite direction. Often, like, stringing it out so that he got the switch that he wanted, rather than, like, sometimes if you go too fast, a switch doesn't happen, or the seams close up. He's really, really patient, and I, I agree. I think he reads the game very well, and, and the one thing I guess I'll be watching for is how much time is he spending with the ball in his hands, because that's where I think he's most effective. And that might prove to be a struggle. And if he is playing, you know, with Kyrie and Dinwiddie at the same time, which I agree is going to be a look they trot out for stretches this season, then it's going to be tough to distribute those possessions effectively. Like, I actually think Kyrie is a very effective off-ball player. It's just a question of whether he's willing to do that on a consistent basis. So, yeah. All right. Who's your next regression candidate? I've got Paul George, and wow. this is another instance sort of similar to Vucevic where, you know, this is a guy who, I mean, he obviously had a baseline that was far higher than Vuce's baseline, but, like, a guy who had a pretty clearly established level that he had been playing at for five or six years and then just so drastically exceeded it that I, I question whether it's repeatable, especially given that he's coming off these two shoulder surgeries and that he is now playing with somebody who he's going to have to defer to, who, I mean, defensively, I have no concerns. I think he's still going to be exceptional at that end of the floor. Like nothing about his balance, his footwork, his timing, none of that's going away. Um, But the way that he shot the ball last season, like the level of self-creation that he was demonstrating, just stuff that I hadn't really seen him doing before, the the number of contested shots that he was hitting, I just think it's going to be tough for him to replicate what he did offensively. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, especially early in the year, like the contested shots he was making. We mentioned the shooting. I will say it's interesting. If you actually look at the numbers, the last three seasons – Last year was the worst of those three in terms of three-point shooting. He was down at 38.6. The year before, he was at 40. The year before, he was at 39. So, 
I don't think there was that much of an outlier there with the shooting, but I just uh, I I go to the double sh- shoulder surgery. Like this guy had both shoulders repaired, and by the end of the season, do I think he can kind of be back in form? Sure, but do I think he's going to be the guy he was last season already in October, November, even December? Probably not. And I think again, just admitting that we're therefore admitting that he's going to regress because he will not be able to have the overall season he had last year. Like. Did, did he finish third in MVP voting? Yeah. There was points of last season where there was no one on the planet playing as well on both ends of the floor as he was. Again, he could not keep that up for 82 games. His body started to break down. We know how their playoffs ended. But there were stretches of last season where I think he was the best player in the league. On balance, he was the best small forward in the league last year, yeah. which is crazy given how stacked that yeah. position is. And... I mean, I, I guess, would you call Giannis a small forward? I feel like maybe people refer to him more as a four. Not that these positional distinctions really matter yeah. anymore, but like he was better than Kawhi during the regular season. He was better than LeBron during the regular season. He was better than Durant during the regular season. It was really astonishing. And again, it, this is not a knock on Paul George. I think he's con- going to continue to be excellent. Uh, I just don't see him hitting that same level this season. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Another regression candidate? I think this one's... I, I don't know. I, I think most people would agree with this. D'Angelo Russell? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, he wasn't on my radar, but let's let's hear why you had him in so that group. So we talked about this at points of last season, and I don't want to take too much away from his last season because I do think he made like small refinements to his game that made a difference. I think he was a little more patient. I think his playmaking was a little better. And I think he was a little more disciplined. But I still think if you actually like go back, watch a lot of the tape, look at the numbers, a lot of it was same process, mysteriously better results. And I'm always skeptical when that happens, especially with these high usage guards that maybe don't always have the best shot selection and discipline. And so just for that reason alone, I, I'm i finding it hard to believe that he'll be able to replicate the kind of success he had last year. Uh, I don't know if he moves well enough off the ball to thrive with the Warriors. Now, the counter to that could be to keep the ball in his hands and let Steph murder teams as an off-ball mover. That's that's a fair point. And maybe D'Angelo kind of shows off more playmaking chops this year. Who he's knows? He's a good passer, and, and he he's is. got good vision. Like He, I, he does, and that's what I'm saying. Maybe in that case, it'll almost shut me up. Like He doesn't need to be a great off-ball mm-hmm. player because Steph can do that, and D'Lo can kill it on the ball. But again, like even just looking at some numbers last year, he actually attempted more shots, uh, more of his shots from the mid-range last year than ever before, less at the rim than ever before. His The percentage of his shots that were three-pointers went down. Like His, his overall shot selection wasn't actually any better. It's just, again, the results were were better even though the numbers don't suggest they shouldn't have been you know and that just makes me skeptical his free throw rate was like historically low for a guy who used as many possessions as exactly he did. like and so i guess for me that's why i don't really consider him a regression candidate because i didn't actually think he was that good last year even though his accounting stats looked really nice you know you you're talking about a guy offensively who was at 32% usage which with like 53% well, that's shooting. Gonna, his efficiency was league average. And then he's a minus at the defensive end. Like, I don't think he was a particularly productive player, you know, outside of the counting stats that he put up. And granted, the Nets needed what he gave them in terms of his scoring and his lead playmaking, but I don't necessarily see that come down coming with Golden State. I actually think he could have a really good year you know, playing alongside Steph and Draymond, two guys who are exceptional playmakers and have exceptional gravity in their own way. You know, Steph, obviously, his on-ball gravity is ridiculous. Um, Off the ball, when he's running around, he's going to magnetize one or sometimes two defenders. And his work as a screener 
also just draws multiple defenders. And then and Draymond, as a role man, has a lot of gravity as well. And his ability to pass out of four-on-three situations is always going to create open three-pointers for teammates. So I think Russell might get a lot of really juicy three-point looks this year and have a really solid scoring season. Uh, I think he's probably going to continue to struggle defensively. Playing with Steph in a backcourt, neither of those guys is going to really have a hiding place um, on most nights. So it's not going to get any easier for him at that end. But I I think he'll be about the same player he was last season. And maybe the counting stats do look different. But to me, I don't see it as a regression because I don't really see him being a much different player this year than he was last. I could see his scoring coming down. But I think he can offset that easily on this team with his playmaking. And I think that'll be kind of like the next step for him if he can do that, if he can find that balance a little better. And I mean, he averaged seven assists a game last year, mm-hmm. but he was spending a ton of time with the ball in his hands. Yeah. So that certainly has a lot to do with that number. I think, I think we're about to find out maybe how smart of a basketball player he is, right? Like, I think the talent's there. And, and yeah, he can find a way to fill a basket, whether it's efficient or not. But. I think between his playmaking and the way you'll have to move off the ball and just the way you'll have to read the game right. in Steve Kerr's system on this team, I think we're about to find out the basketball IQ that resides in that head. And, I mean, another thing is he's going to have an opportunity to run the offense when Steph is on the bench, right? Like, they're going to stagger those guys, presumably, and, and try and keep one of them on the floor at all times, which they absolutely should do. Because, to me, they should be able to play just as well or better apart than they'll be able to play together. And... So how effectively can he run that offense without without Steph on the floor? And who's surrounding him when Steph is on the bench? You know, like, I think D'Angelo could play pretty well with Draymond. Like, they can basically replicate, you know, not to the same extent, obviously, because D'Angelo is not going to have the same kind of gravity that Steph has with the ball in his hands. Not going to induce panic um, when there's the threat of his pull-up three-pointer in the same way. But he can be pretty effective I think running the pick and roll with Draymond and so when they do stagger minutes you know is Draymond playing more with Steph is he playing more with D'Angelo they they just have so little depth on this team and so if Russell can somehow manage to keep that offense afloat when Curry's on the bench I think that'll be pretty impressive another breakout candidate for me Landry Shamit had him on my list and I thought I was going off the board with that I just really I, I like his game I like it a lot. And again, I will hedge a bit and say there is. It's tough to see the path to him actually having at least a statistical breakout because I don't know if there are going to be enough shots to go around on this team between Kawhi, PG, Lou Williams, and even Montrez Harrell. Like, those are all high, high usage guys. Shamit, another guy, 15% usage last year. Like, I don't. Is he going to be able to bring that up? this year given the number of ball dominant players on the Clippers this year that I don't know but what I do know is he is going to have a buffet of open threes this year and you know playing off of those guys Kawhi and Paul George um, the extra attention that those guys draw is only going to make his life easier and he shot 50 uh, sorry 42 percent from three on five attempts per game as a rookie um, the Clippers, after they acquired him last year, were 8.8 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. And I actually think, you know, defensively, he's not the turnstile that it looked like he was maybe going to be early in his rookie season. I think he improved at that end over the course of the year. I think there's a chance for him to get a little bit stronger. But he's pretty solid, just kind of like sliding his feet and keeping guys in front of him. And, you know, also playing on a team with Kawhi and PG will make things easier for him at that end of the floor too because any time like somebody needs to hide defensively like he's going to be able to be hidden right like in a way that he couldn't on last year's Clippers team or even on that Sixers team that didn't have that much perimeter defensive talent you mentioned the counting stats probably not being there and I agree with that but I'll give you three numbers that I think might be there 50 40 90 what about 50 50 90 Wow. <laughs> All right, now we're getting is that, crazy. Is that the Steve Kerr? Did Steve Kerr do that? Uh, I'm not sure. He might have. Um, yeah, no, I think I think he's got that sneaky potential to be like a low-volume 50-40-90 guy the way Malcolm Brogdon was last year. He's already an elite three-point shooter on high volume. I think his shot selection is good enough that he can 
shoot 50% from the field overall, especially as you mentioned on a team where he's going to be getting some great looks. Yeah, and I think he was like, he was an underrated stabilizing force as a rookie on the Sixers last year. And then after the trade, you mentioned how important he was for the Clippers. You remember him hitting the big shot against the Warriors? He can be a big shot taker and maker. He's just an elite shooter, smart guard. I think I think these are all the tools that would be perfect in a guy that a team like the Clippers would need to just be a low usage guard who does his job. And I think Landry Shamit fits that bill perfectly. And so, like you mentioned, I don't think he's going to come out here and start putting up crooked numbers and being in a breakout candidate that way. But I think he'll be a breakout candidate in the sense that he's going to have a pretty important role on a title contending team and I think by the end of the season a lot more people will know who Landry Shamit is than they did a year ago yeah or than they do right now sorry the um the JJ Reddick comparison is just inescapable and pervasive and we've been making those comparisons since we saw the Sixers running him through those JJ Reddick pet plays in the preseason last year like the perpetual off-ball movement um you know the quick trigger off of DHOs uh, his ability to get free off of those floppy actions. But I think he has a little bit more ball skill, at least in terms of his potential, than Redick has. Um, and I think he can run some pick and roll. He can handle the point for stretches. Uh, another thing, like he shot 41% on off-the-dribble threes last season. And it was not a super high volume, but he shot one of those per game. And that's a really positive indicator to me. Like, he's not just dining out on the easiest shots. Like, he can hit tough shots as well. And if there's one potential downside, I guess, apart from the fact that, again, I don't know if there are going to be enough shots to go around. Like, Kawhi and Paul George are not high-end playmakers. And Shamit kind of thrives, I think, within a system, like a more motion-oriented system. And... Kawhi and Paul George tend to play asystematized basketball um, where they're slowing it down and they're playing a little bit more ISO. So maybe Shamit isn't getting the same kind of looks off of off-ball movement that he was in Philly or with last year's Clippers team, but I still think he's going to get a boatload of open stationary threes just off of the attention that those guys are going to draw. I'm going to stick with sophomore guards, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, former Clipper. Yeah, so I thought about putting him on my list, and the reason I didn't is just because I I think it's impossible to know whether the opportunity is going to be there until we know whether Chris Paul is staying or going. But I think even with Chris Paul there, he's still going to log a ton of time and yeah. like have a pretty big role on that team. You think those guys are going to play together a lot? I think they will. I think they'll play together a lot, yeah. And I think for the time Chris Paul is there, I mean, who better to learn from than the point guard? Shake Gilgis-Alexander came into the league as his high-ceiling young point guard who was already a stud defensively and no one really knew what to make of him offensively. And then all he did as a rookie was shoot 50% from two-point range and 37% from three-point range. And that's a guy that, again, we no one knew what to expect from him offensively. Like, they thought he was raw offensively. He didn't look that raw offensively. He's a good playmaker. Looks like he's going to be a good NBA shooter, like above average for sure. Could be an elite defender, smart player like reads the game exceptionally well for his age especially and he's now going to be thrust into a situation where even with Chris Paul there I think he's going to have a bigger role on that team than he had with the Clippers last year and if if and when they do trade Chris Paul he might just get the keys to the offense to the franchise to everything so I think you want to talk about players who between counting stats and the eyeball test and everything might be a clear-cut most improved player candidate to me is Shea Gilgis-Alexander it can always just go one of two ways when you talk about a, a young point guard taking over a team. And you look at it and you're like, wow, the opportunity is going to be there. He's going to have an expanded role. And that could be great for his development, but it could be really bad as well. And it could be really ugly. Um, and I like Shea. And I, and I, if I had to guess, would think that it skews more in the positive direction than in the negative direction. But like, I don't know. If I'm talking about breakout candidates... Like, I think eventually he's going to be really good. Do I think he's going to be really good this coming season? I think there's a potential for him to just, like, have a huge responsibility on his shoulders and be tasked with running an offense all of a sudden in his second season with not a lot of complementary talent around him. And that could be pretty ugly and could lead to, like, a really inefficient season where his metrics are just sort of all over the place. 
and it might take him a couple of years to sort of settle into that role and for things to stabilize for him. So that's I did wrestle with putting him on my list, but ultimately that was the reason that I didn't. You have another regression candidate? I have LaMarcus Aldridge for what feels like probably the third year in a row. <laughs> well, he had that one year of regression, if you remember, and then... But, but that was, I think, more a result of him playing next to a burgeoning superstar in Kawhi and having to defer to him. Because as soon as Kawhi left, Aldridge was back to just being the you know, walking 20 and 10 guy whose who's mid-post game seems impervious to aging. And I guess that's probably still the case. Like, he's still going to have that mid-post game, that back-to-the-basket game, that turnaround jumper. I don't think that's going anywhere necessarily, but he's 34. He's slowing down. I think offensively, he struggles as a four because he doesn't really have three-point range, even though I kind of always thought that was the direction his game would ultimately go. It hasn't happened yet. And as a five, defensively, I just don't think he has the defensive IQ or the speed or the rim-protecting chops to man the back line. So he's sort of like caught between worlds a little bit positionally. And that, to me, just makes him a tough fit in a lot of different iterations of the Spurs. I don't know. I guess that, to me, is the reason why... I, I expect some regression to eventually come. It might not be this season, but it feels like eventually and probably sometime soon that cudgel of regression is coming. He's got more than 35,000 minutes under his belt between the regular season and playoffs. For the most part, he's always been pretty durable. He turned 34 earlier this summer. Like, yeah, the, the signs are there that this guy should be slowing down, and yet... He averaged 21 points, 9 rebounds, a couple assists, and a block last season on 52% shooting, which when you consider his shots, like where he's getting his shots, he's a mid-range maestro. It doesn't make sense that he's that efficient, but he's made it work. To be honest, I didn't even really consider him for regression because I'm just so used to him kind of doing what he does. But no, but He's a bit of a metronome. He is, but but again, but when you look at the numbers in terms of like the minutes adding up and the mileage and all that and... Mm -hmm. You just look at the traditional career arc for guys in this stage, it makes sense that he would be a clear-cut regression candidate. And again, like we, you know, I know you you mentioned it was while he was with Kawhi as Kawhi was kind of breaking out, but like those two years, it wasn't just that the usage was down, like the numbers were down, the percentages were down, and then the last two years all of a sudden were two of the best years of his career. So I, I don't mean, I don't know how long he can keep it going. Do you right. think, okay, he's a seven-time All-Star, I think he's three or four time All-NBA. Do you think he's a Hall of Famer? He is. I mean, he's got to be among the more forgettable Hall of Famers. But if you just look at his production over the course of his career, I think it's pretty hard to deny that he belongs in that group. Basically averaged 20 points, nine rebounds, and a block for his career. Again, seven-time All-Star, three or four-time All-NBA. And he's been on some really good teams. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, to your point about his numbers all coming down with Kawhi. I think it's pretty clear both in his temperament and his production that he is far more comfortable when he is a focal point of an offense than when he has to play second fiddle. And the construction of the Spurs team, I just think makes that somewhat difficult. I think they're going to want to be giving DeJounte Murray a lot of opportunity. DeRozan is ball dominant. There's not a ton of shooting on this team. Like I don't know how the parts are all going to fit together. And so that plays into it for me as well, because I guess last year they somehow got away with trotting out lineups where there were three or sometimes four non-shooters. This year with them trying to work Murray back into the mix, that just gets that much more difficult, I think. So, um, yeah, I just I I think eventually that that regression is coming. uh, He's 34 again. So why not this year? I'll give you a breakout candidate. We talked about his brother earlier in the podcast, Lonzo Ball. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um. I still very much believe in Lonzo Ball's talent as a point guard. Yeah. I think he's in a much more stable environment, uh, just less chaos around. I think Drew Holiday and a guy like J.J. Redick will be really good for him. There's less pressure on him. Like he, No one's expecting, putting any sort of pressure on Lonzo Ball to be the franchise guy. We know that because Zion's there and there's other guys. It just feels like this is like a really good chance for a fresh start. And again, and I just believe in his... There's elite two-way potential there as a point guard, shooting notwithstanding. He's a phenomenal playmaker, great vision, can be a great defender at the point of attack, 
I think he's in the perfect situation now. And again, I don't think he's going to become a lights out shooter or anything like that. But I just think, you know, he's never played more than 52 games in a season. Like, can he play at least 60 games and be a functioning contributor on both ends of the floor to a team in the playoff race? Yes, I think he can do all those things. And functioning contributor, that's your, your baseline for no, a breakout. But like to to a good team that's in the playoff race without any like major injury finally uh. taking advantage again because we've seen it in flashes. Like the playmaking and the vision and, and the defense are all there. And he doesn't have to become a great shooter to to be a really good, like above average point guard in this league. And I think he's right there. Like I really just think he kind of has to keep it together, stay healthy. Stay on the floor, and I think he'll be that this Shoot year. Shoot better than 41% from the free throw line? Yeah, that too. But honestly, again, I, like I said, shooting notwithstanding, I think he can be a piss-poor shooter and still be a difference maker on the court because I do think his playmaking and his defense are that good already. It's just a matter of can he stay on the court for six, even 60 games? If he does that and just plays up to his capabilities, I think that is a breakout right there. Yeah. Something that's been nagging at me about the Pelicans, and I address this in our best case worst case column is just that there is so little shooting on this team and between zion drew holiday lonzo and ingram you have four guys who i think are all best served in on ball roles and i feel like there's a potential for some uncomfortable possession battles in that framework and for the offense to kind of devolve into a lot of my turn your turn stuff and a lot of standing around I actually thought playing alongside LeBron, there was some interesting off-ball stuff going on with Lonzo. They had one particular pet play where um, Lonzo would kind of drop the ball off to LeBron and he would uh, sort of fake like he was drifting to the corner and then he would dart to the basket and LeBron would throw him a lob. Like He's a good cutter. He's a good cutter and like he, he's not especially athletic, but I think he's a heady player who knows where to be and... If he can kind of hone that off-ball stuff, even without having a ton of gravity as like a spot-up shooter, can still make himself useful off the ball. And that's something that I would hope to see from him this season if he's going to have that breakout, right? Like, he's not going to be able to have the ball in his hands all the time because Zion's going to have to have the ball and Drew's going to have to have the ball and Ingram's going to have to have the ball. All these guys are going to have to figure out what they're doing when they don't have the ball, and that includes Lonzo, so I'm interested to see that. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, if there's if there's an area I trust him in, it is figuring things out on the court because I do think his his basketball brilliance is really underrated, and I think just all the stuff with his dad and, like, the, the, the Hollywood drama that was around the Lakers, like, all of it I do think contributed to things. And again, obviously the biggest factor with him is his health. Like, the guy's missed... Geez, like over 60 games, you know, between two seasons. But when he's been out there, we've seen signs of like a really, really solid NBA point guard. And if he can just be that for even three quarters of a season on a good team, like I'll consider that a win for him. Word. Um, I had one breakout candidate in my honorable mentions, and that's Zach Collins. And the reason I put him there and not on my proper list is just because I believe in his ability, and I actually think the Blazers really need a lot from him this season. But I just think he's going to be forced to play a lot of four. And to me, he's far better suited to the five. And I just I don't think because of their hole at that position and because they don't really have many better options for how to fill it, he's not going to be put in a position to succeed in in the way that I believe him capable of. So... I don't know. I, I, I like his skill set. I think it's interesting. Uh, I'd like to see him round out his playmaking a little bit. Uh, I'd like to see him become more consistent as a three-point shooter. But as a defender, as a rim protector, a guy who can actually come out to the perimeter and hang, at least, you know, to a, a certain extent, um, I think the tools are there. And I think, again, the Blazers really need him to be good this year. Um but I just don't know if if that's the right position for him to be playing on a consistent basis. What about uh, two guys I'm surprised you didn't mention? Because are you through your breakout candidates now? Like anything else here is honorable mention? Um, I had one more guy, okay. but I, I'll... Terry, <laughs> Terry Ter- Rozier. Oh my God, really? Um, and I just put him there because... You know, like averaging 25 a game on 16% shooting wouldn't count, <laughs> doesn't count, right? Like, Listen... That stretch with Boston a couple seasons ago 
when Kyrie was out, he was outstanding. When he torched Eric Bledsoe, is that what you're talking about? That's part of what I'm talking about. But even like the back half of that season, like before the playoffs, he really looked comfortable manning the offense. And he has got some off-the-dribble juice. He, I think, is a very solid defender. To me, it's a question of, again, like we talked about his usage rate, the highest of his career, I think, is like 20%. And that could jump up to like 28% this year. Is that increased volume, you know, going to work wonders for his confidence, for his efficiency? There's a chance. Definitely not. And again, that's why I didn't actually put him on my list. I just wrote his name down because I think there's a chance that he rediscovers some of that, some of that juice that he had in the back half of that season with Boston when, you know, he talked about last year going from the passenger seat to the trunk. He's in the driver's seat now. So what's that transition going to be like? I'm interested to see. He's I really in the am. driver's seat now of like a 1944 <laughs> broken down car Le without Saber. an engine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, anyway, I, so I don't actually believe in him as a breakout candidate. I just think there is an outside chance that it actually clicks for him. And I'd be happy to see it because he has been crapped on all offseason and so have the Hornets for giving him that contract. And I would love to see him prove them right. Wrong, you mean? No, to prove the Hornets right. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant to prove the doubters right. I was like, well, that took a turn quickly. (laughs) Um, All right. A couple honorable mentions I had. Lowry Markkinen. I didn't actually put him on the list because people don't realize the guy averaged almost 19 points a game last year. And it's like, how much higher can that really go on a team where there are guys who are going to get their touches? But I do think as an overall basketball player, we'll see another step from him. And I think the Bulls might actually be able to hang around the East playoff race, depending how things break. Josh Okogie in Minnesota, I think, could be a breakout candidate. And then a couple guys that neither of us mentioned, but I almost think of them in tandem, like breakout candidate, a DeJounte Murray, Derek White backcourt. I guess in my mind, the Derek White breakout happened last season, which is not to say that that another breakout can't happen subsequently. Uh, but like when we did our own personal all defensive teams, Derek White was on mine. Um, I, I thought he was fantastic, and you know, you talked about the playoff performance. Obviously, that one game was just ridiculous, but um, the Nuggets subsequently, I think, you know, they they stuck. Corey Craig on him and basically locked him out of the rest of the series. Uh, he still has a long way to go, I think, at the offensive end of the floor. But uh, as a defender, he, he's already elite, in my opinion. And, you know, if the jump shot is reliable, uh, if he can continue to just sort of hone what he can do off of the dribble. Again, it's just... I, I, I'm just confused as to how all the pieces are going to fit together in San Antonio. And that makes it difficult for me to to see individually what each of those players is going to do. But I love the defensive upside of that backcourt. And if Murray is as good as, you know, the Spurs believed last year that he was going to be, then that team could be really good. Um, and, and, you know, I think that starts with his jump shot actually being viable. And if, if it's not, then it's going to be a tenuous fit, both with White and DeRozan and Aldridge and Pirtle. They lost Bertans, like <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I remember tough. correctly, a year ago at this point, before he blew his knee out in the preseason, Murray was either the odds-on favorite, like one of like the two or three betting favorites to win MIP last season. Yeah, I think he was everybody's sort of trendy pick. Yeah, and it seemed like maybe that was because the Spurs had been not so subtly floating the fact yeah. that they thought he was going to explode, and it wasn't totally unfounded because he had had a very strong sophomore season, made the all-defensive team, was starting to show a little bit more skill at the offensive end of the floor. Like, even without a three-point shot, like, he was doing some stuff in the mid-range. He's a really good offensive rebounder for his position. So there are a lot of things that he can do even without that jumper, but I think that's the key to unlocking the rest of his game and turning him into, like, a full-fledged star. Agreed. So we're, I think we're through breakouts. We're through honorable mentions. I have no more regression candidates. Do you have any more regression candidates you want to touch on? I just had one guy who, again, I put honorable mention because I didn't think there was that much to talk about, and it's TJ Warren. And the only reason is I'm not sure I believe in this three-point shooting renaissance that came absolutely out of nowhere last season. Um, he had never shot, I don't think, more than one and a half threes per game. He was up to like five per game last season. 
and he was shooting them somehow at 43%. And the Pacers would love for that to be real, uh, and they kind of need it to be, but I, I just don't know if I believe in it. TJ Warren went from 22% on one attempt per game to almost 43% on more than four attempts per game. That's pretty ridiculous. Also, TJ Warren's one of those guys, like, we're about to find out how much of his production was the looter in a riot theory and how much of it was this guy's actually like a solid score he was just stuck in a bad situation yeah and the pacers are another one of these teams that are just so stuck for threes and fours they need him to be good maybe he's destined to be a looter in a riot forever i guess we'll find it out. might be a riot in indiana this year. <laughs> uh let's hope not yeah well for your sake i know you're a big pacers fan well you know i like the way that they've constructed their team i like i, I like their young talent so all Love right. Oladipo. I think that's it for another week of season preview content. By this time next week, training camps will have opened. The preseason will be a few days away. We'll probably have actual news to talk about. More preview content will be hitting the app. So check that out on the score app, the NBA section. And we will have lots more to talk about. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. <laughs>